Hello, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the MLS Bench Podcast. Uh, we have a jam-packed episode today because we have to break down every single playoff match that happened and preview all the playoff matches still to come this week and weekend. So with me today, I have Matt, as always. Andres is out this week on a sabbatical. So we have Tim, Tim Sullivan from Club & Country, Nashville SC-centered podcast in uh, to give us all the scoops on Nashville and the league as a whole. So, Tim, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing very well. How have you guys been? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, we'll get to your team in just a second, but I want to go in chronological order. Uh, it just seems like the easiest way to do it. And so to break down all of the uh, playoff matches that took place over the last weekend, we will start with the first game, the early Saturday game, which was the Rebels hosting FC Cincinnati. And it was an interesting game, I think. We kind of previewed it, Matt, uh, on the last pod that, you know, Red Bulls would want the game to be faster paced, kind of more that Red Bull way where they, they don't kind of sustain attacks. It's kind of... They'll, they'll launch Lewis Morgan and all those players, Klamala, right down your throat and get what they can. And FCC wanted a more controlled, more methodical game that allowed guys like Acosta uh, to really like build those attacks, Brenner to overlap and stuff like that. Matt, do you think that's how the game played out, kind of the way that we were thinking um, pregame? Or do you think that you know FCC kind of took a different approach? Either way, it worked out for them as they won 2-1 and will advance uh, to face the Union this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, New York has their style. Like, they are a very, you know, set team in how they want to approach a game. Um, and truly, the way that that kind of manifested itself in this match is that this was just a really, really ugly game to watch. Uh, both teams passed very, very poorly. Um, and really, the the only way that Cincinnati was able to find... Decent looks through is over the top. You know, I know that Moreno had a couple of really, really good balls into, I think it was Vasquez mostly. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of just fist fights in the midfield. Um, and I, I think that really the, what the, the tactical side of things that made this really tip towards Cincinnati to me was putting Andres Reyes as a right back who is consistently been a center back for, for, you know, the Red Bulls for, I believe that was Miami beforehand. Um, they were trying to negate uh, Vasquez a lot with uh, Reyes coming in at, on the right. And so Vasquez just went to the other side and there wasn't a lot of one-to-one matchups that could meet him. So since I was able to find some chances, um, it was just a, a very back and forth match, and I I think that it ended up being a fair win for Cincinnati. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think um, especially when you talk about you know neither team passing well, I think that's um, half of that is is by choice of Red Bulls, and I guess the other half is also by choice of Red Bulls in terms of they they emphasize not not worrying about their passing too much, but they want it to be an ugly game, and I think for probably the first I don't know forty five and maybe even a little bit into the second half. It definitely was that. Obviously, they're a team that's going to allow comebacks. <laughs> and, and when you saw, I guess, some of the some of the chances that Cincinnati was able to almost create, 
you could feel that the chances were coming. Obviously, the way that they came about the 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 penalty kick and then and then the uh, the late goal for Vasquez aren't necessarily like oh this is beautiful build up the way Cincinnati wants to play, but it was let's break down Red Bulls the way that you can break down Red Bulls, which often is is let's hit them over the top a little bit, um, especially the the Vasquez goal, of course. And, and you're going to see the Red Bulls make every game ugly, basically. And it's just a matter of if you can if you can bring just that one moment to to turn that ugliness against them, they, they don't really have kind of a, a curveball. They don't have a counterpunch that they can hit you with that that prevents you from from making the most of what they've made available to you. And that's a credit to Cincy because they were able to take advantage of that. Yeah, I, I really want to highlight that, actually, because I think the, the biggest thing in getting that second goal for Cincinnati was that they were able to get that second club out there. And they brought on Sergio Santos for uh, Brenner, who had not been very effective, to be quite honest. But Santos really kind of changed the game a little bit in that he was just significantly more over the top. I feel I, I feel that Brenner likes to drop deep and be part of buildup, whereas Santos was just, let's go ahead, we'll go ahead and turn the ball, ball over in midfield, and I'll go forward, get the ball to me, and he's able to turn that inside for Vasquez. I think that... Red Bulls just is so limited in that they only have one concept to move forward. Like Philadelphia plays high energy and, you know, counter pressing soccer, but they have another way to attack. And that's, that's what I think is just, I, I Red Bulls had no chance because of the fact that they are so limited in the way they approach. Yeah. I, and when you talk about Santos and like the difference that he made, as opposed to Brenner, You've seen this his entire career. Like, if anyone watched Philly for the last two, three years, he wasn't always a starter, but he always saw the field, even if it was, you know, 60 minutes in, because he was that guy who was going to hit the defense deep, who was just going to be physical at a time when center backs, after just playing, you know, Shabilko or whoever, wouldn't want to get into a fight. He would get into all those fights. And that kind of made a difference toward the end in terms of disrupting, disrupting what. Uh, Rebels were trying to do, you know, building out of the back or, you know, whatever kind of play that the center backs wanted to have. He is just a menace like that. Like that is his role. And he played it extremely well. I thought he was a a true difference maker um, for the last, uh, you know, half hour or so. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's um, something that that I guess you could see, but you didn't really realize during his time with Philly is that there is like a certain humility that Santos has that allows him to kind of accept a very specific role um, because he wasn't like an every game guy there. And, and, and since he hasn't been either, but when he comes on, he says, okay, I'm, I'm on for this reason. I'm very willing to accept that I'm on for this specific reason. And he goes out and gets the job done. It's, it's a, it's kind of a workman like approach and something that, um, you know, you, you you would often expect a guy who who plays a forward role to be like, oh man, they're not they're not playing me the way I want or they're not playing me where I want. But he's a guy who who accepts what is asked of him and, and goes out and gets it done. And that's something that uh, you wouldn't have expected Cincinnati, first of all, to to be able to go out and acquire before they um, brought in uh, the the B team of of the union's front office uh, in the off season. And it's also something that you wouldn't have necessarily expected them to, to to think to implement in previous iterations of FC Cincinnati. And I think that that's where the the, the influence from from uh, the, the union uh, coaching tree that they have and, and I guess general managership tree as well is something that has really helped Cincy grow and um, give them kind of that curveball that they were able to, to give that 
Red Bulls didn't have an answer for. And uh, I guess, can yeah, I ask go, you go like, ahead, one other thing that I was kind of interested in? How much do you think the impact of having to take Lewis Morgan off at, at you know fifty minutes had on Red Bulls? I think I feel like he's the only player who really is able to actually possess much at all. And so when they had to take him off for injury or for whatever it, whatever it was, immediately after he scored a wonderful goal, like that just really put a ceiling because I don't think anybody else attacking from the rest of the Red Bulls roster is, is sufficient to the cause. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, regardless of what he does in possession, if you take him off, um, you know, whatever this, the reasoning was that he came off, when you give up that equalizing goal, you kind of think, uh-oh, <laughs> who's going to score for us? Because Morgan is is the guy who is the danger man. And yes, they have other guys who have scored a bunch of goals this year, and they have other guys who have the talent to probably get that done maybe a little bit more frequently than they do. But in a playoff situation, when you've taken your your most talented or, or certainly most effective attacking player off, and all of a sudden you do need a goal again, probably makes you regret that decision, even if you know it was a bit of a forced substitution. Yeah, I, and I think when you talk about Lewis Morgan in – not just like as a player, but as a in the Red Bull context, which is like Red Bulls don't have a lot of attackers that can score goals, mm-hmm. and the the attackers that they do have still don't really score goals. Lewis Morgan's kind of been that guy. It was a great pickup in the off season, um, and, and even though the Red Bulls haven't found a ton of success offensively, most of it's come through him. And so when he comes off, there's almost a you know they almost have to sit on that goal. And just eat pressure from Cincy for the rest of the game with Santos coming in and being that menace as well. Like you could almost, you could predict, I guess, that nothing was going to happen offensively for the Red Bulls. And I think for Cincinnati, that makes their job that much easier. Which is just like, as long as we can get a couple good attacking patterns for the next, you know, half an hour or whatever, we have a really good shot of winning this game. And I think that's an important point to lay out that not just what it does for you, but what it does for the opponent in terms of, you know, streamlining the decisions that they have to make. But yeah, I mean, yeah, when, if, you're, if you're FC Cincinnati, sorry, if you're FC Cincinnati, you know that, that they don't have their most dangerous attacking player anymore. And it really changes the way you can approach the game. I think that's a good, a good full view of that game in terms of the ups and downs of it. And I mean, for, from a Cincinnati perspective, the last 30 minutes or so was exactly what you want to see, which is just pressure um, from the attackers when the opponent has the ball and then finding those cutting runs, Santos being a beast, uh, and just Brandon Vasquez also getting on the end of stuff, which is, you know, he had that, what, that hot streak in the summer and kind of cooled off towards the fall. If he's able to get back in form, and Matt, uh, we've said it a bunch of times with Andres as well, the biggest difference in the playoffs is the keeper that you have and Celentano has proved himself to be one of those keepers that just he is a difference maker in the short time that he's been in the league you kind of throw that together and you have two or three game breakers offensively and a guy in Celentano can keep you in as a union fan and we're going to get into that game I am quite scared so yeah final score Cincinnati 2 Rebels 1 in Red Bull Arena and the I think slight underdogs in that game will move on uh, to the second round. Now, Tim, I think this is when we kind of turn it over to you. Uh, the other Saturday game, the Galaxy 
hosting Nashville in LA <laughs> and another uh yeah another four versus five matchup I think this was an interesting game in terms of if we saw the galaxy that we you know had seen in the weeks leading up to the playoffs that's a good that's a really good team that's a team exceptionally capable of winning I, I, against most teams that they will play in this league with Ricky Pooge you know doing his magic and all that stuff but if that galaxy team was the galaxy team that we had saw for you know the five six months leading into the last you know few weeks then it was a, a game that Nashville could have taken easily so which version of the galaxy do you think we got and how do you think Nashville responded to that um that's kind of an interesting and an interesting way to frame it i think we got a galaxy team that really wanted to possess the ball um and obviously pooch is a huge part of that this is a, a extraordinarily talented player with the ball but the galaxy wasn't turning that into a ton of scoring chances and that's because nashville was focused on uh, allowing the galaxy to have a lot of the ball as long as they didn't do anything with it they went with a five-man back line which they've done occasionally over basically each of the past three years but they had really kind of centered on a pretty standard four two three one over the past couple months uh towards the end of the season here and and they were willing to say hey we're just gonna go play defensively and hit on the counter the problem was that la wasn't proving to be susceptible to the counter and so what they were actually able to do was was counter once themselves. Uh, it was called back because probably for a correct call because of a, a foul that began the scoring sequence, um, a Chicharito goal taken off the board, but um, not too long thereafter, uh, kind of, you know, from an innocuous position uh, across to a to a fullback right right in the box is a situation where you don't necessarily expect Nashville to get beaten. And they did. And from there, um, if you don't have a performance from Hani Mukhtar like you expect or hope to have from Hani Mukhtar, it's going to be really tough for you to come back. And that's what happened in Nashville. Um, I, you know, I think it was I, some of it is is the lens through which I view these games it is the Nashville lens. But it d does feel like a game that was more maybe Nashville going out and losing it more than the Galaxy going out and grabbing it and winning it. But at the end of the day, one team wins and one team loses, and, and the Galaxy are the ones moving on. So I don't think they'll have any shame about the way they went out and won it either. I'm, 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 I'm thinking about that of, of, is this a game that Nashville lost or the Galaxy won? And I, I, kinda, I think that I agree with you because I think that really where where this game took place was primarily i think it's through the midfield and i don't think that anything that nashville really did was mm. able to slow down push and anything that nashville tried to get started was really cut out by by delgado and by brookman and i think that that balance that uh, the galaxy is able to find was really really pretty pretty nice and you know, then you just open up. I, I feel like I have yet to see Pooj take the wrong pass, take the wrong option. Um, I I think that you're right. I think that I, I just wish that Mukhtar had been able to make more of a statement on the match. And I think the fact that he wasn't is, is a credit to the Galaxy's midfield for finding ways to isolate him and yeah I, I i think that i agree yeah i think it's it's an interesting thing I, i'm more interested in your takes on this kind of theory of mine that could just be a you know a, a watcher's perspective you know not never being at a galaxy game you know and obviously 
you know, having no insight into uh, what the players think or anything. But ever since they've gotten Pooj and, and Brugman, but specifically Pooj, it seems like they have a level of control over these games that they just didn't have three months ago. Like, I don't feel as worried about the Galaxy doing something crazy, whether it would be crazy good or crazy bad. I feel like they have a more they have more stability about them that they didn't really have earlier this season. Tim, I'll start with you. Do you think that's kind of backed up in what you've seen in the Galaxy? Yeah, I think I think that's actually a really astute observation because I wouldn't say they have been historically like a chaos team in the past couple of years. But when you have a guy like Pooj who again he's he I, I don't think he's been quite as incisive obviously he has a couple really highlight moments but i don't think he's been quite as incisive as the galaxy might have hoped but i think he's given them that sort of stability that you know every decision is right sort of characteristic that has really been lacking for them in the past few years and that's probably more important than what they might have thought they were getting honestly so yeah i think that's a really good point that they're they're getting something from him specifically but yes also from Brugman. i'm, I'm not super sold on Brugman to be honest he's like fine an adequate uh mls fine. defensive but, midfielder like yeah which is what the galaxy needed yeah yeah he's not going to be a problem for them but he's not going to be he's not going to be a game changer in the way that even if it's often subtle, Pooj has been, I think, I'd say. I, I think it also just cannot be discounted, the fact that the two people that Pooj and Brugman have replaced were nowhere near as mobile as as those two. Um, and so they can actually be a little bit dynamic at times instead of having to really sit on a ball, slow the game down. And it just, I, I think that that... You know, that gives you opportunities to use Chicharito's movement to actually create more space and draw defenders out. That I think that that's something that uh, I'm going to be watching for on Thursday for sure. Yeah, I think I actually think that that maybe that increase in in mobility is I don't want to say caught Nashville by surprise, but I think it 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 very much played against how Nashville uh, was set up to play against the Galaxy too. They thought they were going to be able to move those guys around a lot, and I, I think. It probably fairly you would you might have expected that Pooj, who is not known for his defensive ability, especially, would be able to kind of track your guys sideline to sideline and then also go out and play the typical attacking game that he wants to play. And so I think that that's something that that is huge and, and possibly underrated. I think something that can't go underrated as well is like the switch that's occurred within the galaxy since getting Pooj that they started to go three in the midfield when, you know, earlier in the season it was just Revelison and Delgado and now you can drop Rubin at the six, give Delgado a little bit more flexibility, and obviously Pooch can go anywhere he wants on the field. I feel like that's allowed a little more streamlined attack, whereas before it was just kind of like, you know, just throw it up to the wingers, Chicharito make a run, you know, just kind of see what you can get. Whereas now it's more, it is more methodical because you have a guy like Pooch who is that level where he can kind of just pick, like you said, Matt, the perfect pass every single time. And what I was talking about, what I was talking about earlier in the season, I was thinking back to games like Matt, you know, at Sporting Kansas City, uh, at home against the Sounders when they went up, well, they they went up, what, 3-1, then Sounders came back or something like that. Um, it, those kind of games that were just like, it, they never seem to have control. Now they do, um, or at least more so that... I feel more comfortable in them winning matches going forward. I, I feel relatively um, 
optimistic about their chances against LAFC. Like I think that they, ha- they are a team that can legitimately beat LAFC. Whereas you know, again, before Puj, that's just not a possibility I would have seen. So I think good stuff from the Galaxy overall. Tim, I, we might do a natural recap at some point, but I guess now, kind of immediately since the season's ended, the last two days or so. Looking back on Nashville, what do you see in this team? What do you think they could have done differently in this game, or maybe the season as a whole that could have potentially changed their prospects for the better? Yeah, I think in this game it was it was going out and playing not to lose, going with that back five. Um, it's something that again they've had success with in the past, and in a playoff game, they're I think they're pretty open about the fact that they're saying, "Hey, on the road, um, we're more in a can't lose situation than a must win situation." Um, so, th- so in that in this particular game, that's probably the biggest issue. Over the course of the season, it had to be secondary scoring from anyone other than than Mukhtar. They were just getting es- essentially nothing, um, and that's you know whether that's because they made a bad signing in terms of a striker that you know they thought they were going to get a heck of a lot more from Ake Lobo when they brought him in as a DP last midseason. It didn't happen, and. In- in- at a certain point, it's a sunk cost, and there's nothing you can do about it until the next year. We'll see if they do try to figure out a way to move on from him this offseason. It is going to be tough for them, so we'll see. But that's the biggest issue for me. And then, obviously, um, you know, I mentioned that that Godoy and, and McCarty, in part, didn't play because of, of simple fatigue. This is a pretty old team, especially in that midfield. So this is something that, going forward, they're definitely going to have to address. Uh, I don't know necessarily... Uh, you know, their, their precise plans for doing that. I don't think they completely move on from McCarty or, or Godoy or CJ Sapong, but um, anything that they can do to, to decrease reliance on those guys, especially because they learned the hard way <laughs> that they can't be fully reliant on them all year, is something that they're, that they're going to have to address because that was something that they, they felt all year, you know, they felt the pain of that whole year that they didn't have guys that, um, were both reliable in terms of their injuries and reliable in terms of their ability. They they could basically get one or the other, um, depending on how they're available to them. You know, quickly them. interested. I, I think you know this team. Obviously, it, this is not a secret that Hani Mutar has been just the everything for this team for the last two years. He's been their entire attack. I. Mm-hmm. This is almost unsustainable to be the guy for a team at that level, an an MVP level player for two, three straight years, do you think he's going to be able to do it next year? And do you think that they can bring in any help in the offseason to kind of lighten that load just a little bit? Yeah, I I think he probably can. I really honestly didn't think, always think this, but I think he's just kind of at a level where he, he can be like the best player in MLS because he doesn't belong at the MLS level necessarily, you know that sort of guy who who, who is above the level. There are several of them in the league. Um, some of them have not been able to sustain it. Carlos Vela hasn't been both healthy and that same level of productive um, as much as he would have loved to be over the past couple of years. But if Nashville is going to have team success out of it, they have to give this guy some help. Um, he can he can do it, but he can't he can do it for himself and get the production. I don't know that he can do it and the team get the results that they want as consistently as they want. And that's, that's the goal of the general manager. It's not, you know, make Hani Mukhtar into a star. It's, it's make this team win games and, and, you know, win trophies ultimately. 
That's interesting. Is to to me, I think that what you're kind of bringing up is the risk of becoming Columbus. Like you are so reliant on, in your all's case, Mukhtar. In Columbus's case, Zellerian. So can you find that Cucho type player to partner? Like that that would be that takes Nashville from a very good MLS team. Uh, if if everybody is healthy and performs to like an elite level, and I, that that that's going to be something interesting to watch in the offseason. No, if if Nashville get a Cucho like player at at that level to partner with Mutar, they're going to win MLS Cup. Like that, like if they get a Cucho level player, they're going to be insane. <laughs> yeah, and obviously uh, that that's that's the goal, right? Is to get a player like that. But you know, if you get if you get a player who. Uh, you know, if you get another Jacob Schaffelberg level player who they added midseason on loan from Toronto FC, that's enough spreading of the load that it doesn't have to be all Mukhtar. And that makes him more able to be consistently productive. It takes away the opportunity for a, a LA Galaxy team in the playoffs to take Mukhtar away and say, nobody else can beat us. Um, that's the sort of thing that they need. Uh, yeah, they would not turn down a Kucho Hernandez type player to say <laughs> the would, least. You know? I think basically every team in the league can use a Kucho Hernandez level player. But no, thanks for that, Tim. And you know, obviously disappointing this year for Nashville. Back to back trips to the playoffs or was it three straight years now since they've been in the league? Um, that it just yeah. hasn't quite worked out. But I think, like you said, add some pieces in, lighten that load, and you can continue to build on this, which is again. When you have a good keeper and a good back line, you can start to make stuff happen from there. And I, I think, obviously, with a player like Mutar, you're 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 not asking a lot of the uh, front office uh, to turn this team into a first, second round playoff team and a team that can go even deeper. But yeah, that's that's all we got on on that game. Uh, Galaxy one, Nashville nil, and Galaxy will go on for a Trafico this Thursday against LAFC. That one should be one of the better games uh, of the playoffs, period. Um, I, I think we can move on now to the first game on Sunday. That was really the first crazy MLS game of the weekend, uh, which was Austin and RSL. Austin hosting as the number two seed. You know, me, as did you know a bunch of other MLS fans, think, you know, Austin, amazing team this year. Maybe the MVP, probably the MVP on their team. You know, RSL, perennial underdogs always find a way to make something happen. But this is, it's got to be Austin all the way. And, uh, well, 15 minutes in, uh, Sergio Cordova said absolutely not. Put RSL up 2-0. Austin, it takes him to the 93rd minute to get back those two goals. In extra time, no score and penalties. Austin win decisively. So maybe a little tougher, Matt, than we thought initially, initially last week. But at the end of the day, the number two seed does get it done. Though I am interested in hearing your take on why do you think that they found RSL so difficult? And do you think it's just the RSL curse that everyone in the playoffs finds RSL that difficult? I mean, that just that's just effort. And um, there is very little um, variance in RSL top to bottom. Like, they are going to be difficult to play against and can create maybe five, six chances a game that are really, really solid. Um, and then it's up to those players to actually finish those off. Um, this match, I, this is, it's an interesting one because I think 
if not for Rubin making an absolutely awful challenge, uh, I I don't see Austin coming back. Truth be told, like they they were just not able to pull apart that back line, and and I think Ojeda and Ruiz did a really really solid job trying to contain Driusi. Um but the second that they lost their that player, like I'm I'm looking at the um, XG map and it just shoots up from the 55th minute. Uh, so it's, 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 it's one of those really, really frustrating moments for RSL fans. I'm, I'm certain um, the fact that they were able to hang into it past uh, the end of, of uh, extra time to send this to penalties at that point, I was like, Oh no, RSL is, you know, they're going to do their team of destiny, you know, find some dumb way to win a game. And it just didn't work. Stuver's a very good goalkeeper, so he did very well in the penalties. Um, and I think that that's... I, I, I don't take much away from Austin on this, but RSL just couldn't get there. Yeah, Tim, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on, like, RSL obviously would never imagined in their wildest dreams that they could get a 2 nothing lead at Austin just straight out the gate. I am wondering... How, what do you think goes through the mind of those players and Pablo Mascherani at that moment? Do you think it is, as I think it is, just like sit on that lead as long as you can? Or do you think that they are trying to get more goals? Because this RSL team is maybe one of the more pragmatic teams in the league. So you almost, when you get to that point of 2-0 up against a team like Austin, you almost kind of just have to sit on that thing for like 75 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think knowing the the characteristics of a Pablo Mastorini team. And um, again, he's, he's a product of the, of the Gary Smith coaching tree himself. So uh, yeah, they're going to sit on the lead. <laughs> they have no intention of, of trying to continue building on a two nothing lead. Obviously going down a man really changes what you're able to do. And they, you know, didn't really have a way to say, okay, we're going up against a talented team like Austin and now we're also down a man, but we can sit here and ride this out. But that, that you know, that's what they tried to do. And, and obviously, you know, if not for a, a stoppage time penalty, that it might've played out for them. So it's something that, uh, yeah, that they are, they are a team that historically, you know, you know, this is a, a team that has advanced in the playoffs without taking a single shot <laughs> within the past couple of years here. They were going to sit on a lead, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, it just didn't work out for them. Yeah, I think that's that, that sitting on the lead thing. I'm not going to say that it did them in because also like I Austin's a very solid team. Those two goals might have just been a, a kind of weird anomaly that it really hasn't happened to Austin a ton this year. Like. They they haven't been amazing defensively, but they haven't been like shipping goals left, right, and center. But I think when when those two goals go in, it's got to plant a seed of doubt in your mind. Now you trust you know your MVP to go back. Good cross by Fagundes, great header by Adriusi, and that brings them back in the game. Then that Rubin red card just absolutely changes the game. Right, I'm not sure RSL had a moment of control from that point onward, but. I, I think when you're Austin, you give up those two early goals, you're asking for a very, very long road back. And I think without that red card, like you said, Matt, that road is basically impossible because RSL are such a principal team. They can sit in and defend that with kind of those two defensive midfielders and that back line that's consistent as ever. 
I, I am interested because uh, Tim, we haven't talked to you a ton uh, on the pod. What's your take on you know a guy like Zach McMath who stepped in big time for RSL? Do you think that there's more he could have done this game, or do you think he kind of had you know one of those performances that makes you sit back and say like he is a a keeper that's been overlooked for years in this league and given a chance to shine this year, he just kind of been that guy for them. Yeah, I like McMath um, quite a bit. He's obviously had his ups and downs over the years, but uh, you know, if if you're a guy who who is sitting back there, I guess a team like Austin, who um, you know, we we talk about about RSL's kind of mindset to to sit there and absorb pressure a lot. Austin is also a team that is not going to give up belief, even when they go down two goals, and especially uh, when they go up a man in that situation. And McMath is the sort of guy who is who's who he who is a very talented keeper, but he's he's probably not a guy who you're going to say, okay, we're going to you know let you get hit with um, you know 38 shots, I believe it was, and and we're going to trust you to to save them all. It is a situation where th- there's an upper limit of of what he is going to be able to do, and that's not because he's a bad keeper; he is a very good keeper. But um, you know you have to be a, basically a superhero, <laughs> especially against a team that's that's not only going to take a ton of shots like Austin, but but do it uh, with the the talented players that they do have to make that happen. Um, you know, eventually a guy is just going to run out of run out of uh, steam and run out of, I guess, a, a little bit of <laughs> of magical stuff because because he is he is just what he is at a yeah, certain point. But I think he, the magic has kind of been there all year. It's kind of come, you know, after the Ochoa stuff kind of went wrong. We don't really still don't really know what happened necessarily in that situation, but. That kind of went downhill. He steps in, shows up big time. Uh, I am interested, Matt, in getting your take on another one of those kind of almost an underrated player. Player who's been in the league for a few years. Doesn't really continue to get the shine that I think he deserves. And Diego Fragundes has been incredible for Austin this year. And will be overshadowed by the fact that they have one of the, the two MVP candidates on their team. One or Maybe two, one of the three MVP candidates on their team. But what do you think Fagundes' impact has been this year? And also just like in this game alone, that cross for the goal was the spark that started to change change Austin's uh, fortunes for good in this game. Yeah, so, so, so good. Uh, Fagundes, I just, I love, I think that really what I'm, uh, he's been able to succeed with in this, in this team is that he has a very distinct list of tasks to take care of in every match. And you know that he's going to put in 100% effort. Uh, I think that just Josh Wolf has very clearly outlined what his role is supposed to be. And, you know, it's... Uh, I'm trying to think of the NBA version of, like, the bench player. That's that's Fugundes. He is, like, the the non-MVP MVP. He is so good at being that second threat um, and trying to make the choice of whether he puts the ball into Ruti or, or um, uh, Jite or he finds his MVP and finding the right time to do those two things is really important. Uh, Cause I think that he's very good at creating space for those players by making that determination. I think that he's been magical this season, truly. Every good number one needs a great number two. And that's why Austin's been so successful this year. They, they found that second guy in Fagundes to be the catalyst to a lot of the success that Drew ended up benefiting from. 
Tim, I am interested in getting your thoughts on Fagundes too. Obviously, like a player who's been around in this league for a bunch of years now and has really gone under the radar until these last year or two when he's found his his place in Austin. What what do you think makes him so successful within this team? Obviously, you know, playing off guys like Aruti and Driussi, uh, it, that's not a small part in it. But yeah, what, what do you think makes him so successful? Yeah, that that is obviously a very big part of it, in fact. But I think some of it is the way the Revs have played um, under under Bruce and, and predating Bruce as well has not always been the most beautiful soccer. And he's a guy whose style of play is more conducive to playing the open sort of game that Austin wants to play. And Austin has built their team around a guy like Fagundes being able to play that way. Of course, Driussi being able to play that way. The, the the combination of style and individual talent slash characteristics that he brings works out really perfectly for him. And that's something that um, when you find it in, in certain places, I, I think even um, when Jossie Zardes first started playing under Caleb Porter with the crew, it was a perfect combination. A, a guy who's going who's gonna to get a bunch of chances for the striker and the striker who is going to finish those chances. Um, there are a lot of ways that, that, that these guys uh, have not always found success without each other. But when you do have that kind of perfect fit for, for the year, year and a half that that happened, it works great. And Fagundes has found the right players around him and the right system that allows him to shine the way that he has this year. Again, like you mentioned, like you mentioned, Joey, when you're uh, when Sebastian Driussi is the guy you're assisting, it's going to work out for you a lot of the time. So it is a situation where, yes, some of it is just that being the number two is going to really work out for a guy when the number one is as talented as the number one is for him, too. Yeah, I, I think it, the reason I just you know, pinpointed on Fagunda uh, specifically is just because he's going to continue to go under the radar because it was Sebastian Driussi who had the two goals next to his name uh, in this game. But Fergundes is still a massive part of that attack, and I think deserves that credit. Obviously, you know, I think Doyle put out a tweet, you know, basically being like, when you have, you know, two game breakers up top, and you have a guy like Stuver, who was magical in the shootout, when you have three legitimate stars on your team, you can kind of go the distance in the playoffs because, like I mentioned with Cincinnati, you have those guys who are the game changers and can keep you in games when, like in this game, it was 2-0. You have guys like Fagundes to Driussi and then obviously Stuver in the shootout. Uh, but yeah, that's basically all I have on this game. 2-2 the final in Austin. Austin's going to move on for a little Texas rivalry versus Dallas. Uh, that one should be a lot of fun as well. RSL... Didn't make it quite as far as last year. That would have been fun if they went on another run. But they drop out. Always the underdog, always the uh, pragmatic team. Couldn't quite get it done in Austin. I think we can move on to the Sunday night game. Uh, That was Montreal hosting Orlando. Uh, I forget, Matt. Were were we the ones who uh, vociferously predicted a Montreal win? Um, Or it might have been me and Andres. But either way... We thought Montreal was going to show that they were the number two team playing the number seven seed. It didn't quite work out that way, but at the end of the day, it was a 2-0 scoreline. Matt, I'm interested in getting your take on how this game played out. And honestly, I'm not sure that this scoreline was an accurate representation necessarily of how the game went. I think that's fair. Um, Yeah, I... 
Orlando found ways to generate really, really good chances. Um, and I, I still hold that be able to create a couple of opportunities, but they absolutely have no cutting edge. And so I, I just, I'm fine with them getting two big chances a match anytime, because I don't think that they'll put them away reliably. Um, this, uh, this match was really interesting because you had um, Montreal really trying to actually play. And then uh, I, I'm trying to understand a little bit more about how or what Pareja ball is, because I feel like that's something that gets uh, tossed around um, MLS circles quite a bit. And I don't really see a, a true system uh, quite yet. And I think I still just did not see it from Orlando. I still think that they just have a tendency to be a little bit wasteful of the chances that they have. And I, this worked out for Montreal because of that. They were, or Montreal was able to find Kone who had a really wonderful goal, worked really, really well through like between that back line. If, if, if Orlando had Robin Jansen, this game is probably very different than it is, but they didn't. Montreal was able to weather that early pressure and they were able to pull out the win. Yeah, I, I I am totally with you on like I I know Preha Ball is a thing, and I just it is hard to like kind of put your finger on what it is. They're they're going to create like four or five really good chances in a game, and they're not going to give up a ton of bad chances. But how they do it doesn't seem to be like a hyper uh, definable thing. But when you look at the, I think the talent disparity between these teams, Montreal was able to just kind of say, okay, that, you know, those chances are going to come. This is going to happen to us. At the end of the day, we trust our guys to be able to do it. And obviously, um, you know, the, the game was a lot closer than the final score, especially with the, with the, um, the penalty late in the game to, to, to provide the final margin. But it was a situation where it didn't seem like Montreal was ever concerned about losing either. They were maybe not, you know, super confident they were going to win, but it, it didn't seem like there was a, a situation where they're like, uh oh, you know, Orlando's really got us here. And then, you know, eventually they just let that talent take over. And that's something that I don't know if that was the design of their game plan by Wilfred Nancy, but certainly when you look at what his team has been able to do over the course of the past year plus, it's 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 been incredible. And and I think that they stand a really good chance to to continue on in the playoffs. And that's something that no, I, I think I think Philly Philly is is going to have an eye on them and say that's that is still our comp. They were our competition for the Eastern Conference in the regular season. They are going to be our competition for the Eastern Conference in the playoffs as well. Dave, can I ask you a quick question on um, Georgie? I, I'm I'm really interested to hear. I, this is a question I've been asking on like watch around or um, watch along stuff like that. What do you think are the the elite skills that Georgie has? Uh, I don't know. That's actually a really good question. He has he has good passing vision, and he he has a a desire to make chances. I think is is probably the number one thing that's like this is what he brings because a lot of what he does is 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 be like eighty percent awesome at a lot of stuff instead of being a hundred percent awesome at any given thing. I like it, it is kind of interesting because he's not a very vertical player, but I would consider him a decent to good dribbler. He's not like 
an assist king, but again, I think he he has the desire and ability to make kind of the killer pass. So so it is it is kind of a, a combination of things more than any individual skill, I guess that that makes him uh, the player that he is. And he's a guy that I am really high on too. But it is hard to articulate exactly why it's, that is. I guess that's what it, I've been kind of asking that around. Just whenever I get the chance, just because I feel like. That's an interesting, it's the question that I ask about any player who's getting a lot of mm. looks at any particular time. So I can try and understand what what specifically people are saying when he's like, oh, they're very, very good. Um, I, I'm with you. I, I know there was an, a chance that uh, Georgia created with really a, a no-look pass tight in behind um, Juan. Uh, was it? No, it was on the left. It was behind uh, Mochino uh, to... Just create a chance. I feel like my my answer is that he's very good at creating the chance before the chance. He's very, very good at setting up people into that primary assist zone. And that's that's what I think that I'm going to be watching. I think that he's got kind of a, a, a rough matchup in New York City. But I think that that's going to be a really, really fun match. And I, I think that's going to be one that uh, a lot of interesting matchups are, or micro matchups are in there. Sorry, that was a little bit of a derailment. No, no, you're, you're good. You're good. No, I think that's an interesting thing about Georgie because I was going to bring up um, something specifically like I saw in the second half. He was pressing the center backs a lot and he was coming out of it successfully a few times where like if you look at his stature, he's not like a super fast guy, obviously not a super physical guy, but he seems... He has that kind of intangible ability to just make stuff happen on the soccer field. And sometimes that's more important than having a single defining trait as to, you know, why he's, you know, the amazing player. He just makes stuff happen. And I respect that a lot. Again, as an American you know, soccer fan, as a U.S. soccer fan, I want to see him get a look because... Sometimes what I think what the U.S. needs and what any soccer team really needs is just a guy who can make stuff happen that is like positive in the attacking third for your team. And Mihailovic just seems to be that guy. He's fitting extremely well at Montreal. And I think he has that kind of ability to just be someone who can be a difference maker. However, that may be, it can change game to game, but he didn't, he just has found a way to mold to the Montreal play style, whatever that has to be, even if it's a game to game basis. Tim, I, I guess, how do you see him in terms of that context? And in the United States kind of fold, hmm. do you think he can be a guy that we can see almost as one of those more intangible guys, but might see the field because of his ability to, you know, generate some of those kind of the generating the chance before the chances, Matt says. Yeah. I mean, I think that's obviously something that anybody who watches this, the U S men's national team recognizes they need a, quite a bit more of probably, I, you know, realistically, I think at at the point in the cycle that we are and, and having pulled out of um, his, his, you know, his big chance call up uh, due to injury, it's a situation where we probably aren't going to see him this cycle. I wish we could, I wish, you know, I wish we had, and I wish going forward that we were going to, but, you know, I have a realistic kind of, you know, take on to, as to whether that is actually going to happen. But, but yeah, I think, you know, he would he would fill an, a niche that, um, in terms of of a role like as a as a chance before the chance creator or even a 
you know, a primary assist guy if he's in the right system. His physical, his physical and stylistic matchups are are kind of an odd fit for for the system that that the United States is running now. He's he's not you know defensive enough to be an interior guy. He's not athletic enough to be a, a, a one of the winger types. So it is kind of an awkward fit. But in terms of skill set, he's a guy. He's a guy that I've always been high on, and um, I love it when dudes prove me right. So I'm I'm very glad that he's gone to Montreal and had the success that he has. Matt, thoughts on that kind of idea that you know, and obviously you know, with the caveat that the United States and the formation and the play style doesn't necessarily cater to what he's looking to do. But do you think he's a guy that can make a difference uh, in the USMNT as it is right now? I think so. Uh, I think he. Uh... Yeah, I, I think Tim said it really, really well. I think that there are times where I think that his um, defensive work is a little underrated, but it, it's we're talking about like he would be a very solid second striker defensively, uh, and that's just that you know that's nobody's first first option for any player. Um, so I, yeah, I think that I can't say anything new within this context, and I guess. Just, and you know, I think that's a good conversation with Mihailovic and a necessary one because he is that guy from Montreal. But you know, quickly before we move on from this game, uh, just you know, staying on Montreal, the first big impact in this game, and really the impact that you know was the decider in this game, was Ismail Kone and Tim. Again, we can take this national team. Obviously, I want to keep it more on Montreal, but even just as a national team fan. He is a scary, scary prospect for uh, Canada coming forward. But what do you think he's able to offer both for Montreal and for the Canadian national team as just a youngster that seems to just have it all going for him right now and probably someone who's going to make a jump in whether it be the next couple of months or a few years to a bigger club probably on another continent? Yeah, it's weird because he's a guy who, who it seemed like took a really long time to to find who he was and I guess some of that was because um of the of the injuries that he had over the past couple of years but um when you look at what Montreal has done over the course of especially this season but but last season as well they just feel so much better and more dangerous when he's on the field and that's something that you know obviously Canada is is a team that that is going to um, you know, they aren't going to have a ton of guys playing in the Premier League. Yes, you're going to have, um, you know, big five guys like Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies, but dudes who are playing at a really high level in MLS can still raise the level of Canada in a way that, um, you know, they might be able to with the United States, but they're, but it's just realistically not going to happen that way at this stage of, of the program. So I think, I do think you that you're right in that. There probably are even bigger things in his in his future, but but looking to the World Cup, he's a guy that Canada uh, can and should uh, make great use of. I think that he is somebody whose whose contributions have probably been underrated, um, and I think most people have a, a very high opinion of John Herdman as both an evaluator and a and a guy who who kind of integrates talent into his system. Should recognize that and be able to to get a lot of use out of a guy uh, like Ishmael Kone. Yeah. He he just seems to be the real deal. He has a he has a poise about him on the ball that I like. He just kind of works for the team in the way that you need to. I mean, both in the Montreal setup and the Canadian setup. 
And, you know, you mentioned about those guys, you know, they have their kind of core of guys. But, like, we, we look at the team, key contributors like Maxime Crapo doesn't start, but has had to make appearances on the regular. Obviously, Sam Piet, uh, another Montreal guy, Alistair Johnson. So you have guys who are playing in MLS who are, you know, starters, key contributors. Kone can 100% be one of those guys in the, in the World Cup, whether he moves on in the next couple months. He, he can still be one of those guys. Canada's found a perfect spot for those MLS guys. So I didn't want to throw him in there just because that goal, as you mentioned, uh, I think, Matt, you mentioned it was so nice. Um, and and obviously uh, changing kind of, kind of that game and the complexion of it. Interesting, just quickly, Matt, going forward, do you think Montreal is going to try and play a little more? Because we did mention it earlier. They were trying to play the ball on the ground. They were trying to kind of play that half-court offense that we see a lot of teams like to play. They were trying to play with their center backs, obviously using guys like Georgie um, to facilitate. Do you think we're going to see more of that uh, from Montreal moving forward in the playoffs, or do you think they tried to do it and they thought they could do it against uh, maybe an an inferior Orlando side, but when they come against New York City, it's just not going to happen that way? I think they're still going to try to, and I think that that's what makes the the match against New York particularly interesting. interesting. they, there are so many times where specifically Kamal Miller um, tries to carry the ball forward out of, of further back spots. You know, in, in the match against Orlando, there was a time that he took the ball off of Victor Wanyama's foot. I thought that was a, a really fun touch. Um, they they try to play the ball. I think that what they're going to end up doing, though, is if you try to do that against New York City, the, New York City is very, very good at taking advantage of players out of position. And so they have to be very, very um, cautious about when they try to go ahead and come out of that shape in order to make sure they're not getting too far out and given, you know, Max Morales great opportunities to make deep lying runs coming from way deeper than anybody would expect them to be coming from. So I, I think they'll do it. Yeah. That's interesting, and obviously we can touch on that just you know quickly um, when we do the the quick game preview of that one. Uh, but yeah, solid win for Montreal. Two 0 was the final at home. They will have another home match against NYCFC, and the Saputo was rocking. You love to see it when it when it gets going like that up there. Playoff time for Montreal, which is really they, they had not something that they've been able to experience uh, in the recent years. So. That's really cool just also to see them, you know, get fans in their home stadium, have that environment be kind of that that passionate kind of cauldron that Montreal hasn't always had and certainly hasn't had in these kind of matches um, in the last couple of years. So it's cool to see see that come to fruition as well. Uh, so, yeah, to know Montreal, they will move on and play NYCFC at home in the second round. Move on to the Monday matches now, and it, we started with maybe the least intriguing match, as it turned out to be, um, in the first round, which was NYCFC's 3-0 stomping of Inner Miami at City Field, kind of the third destination on their pecking order of you know places to play. But they found the other baseball field in New York City, played a soccer match there, and NYCFC looks like an exceptionally scary team. Uh, Tim, what do you have in this game? And uh, I guess you can start from an NYCFC perspective because I think there's a whole lot to like there. 
Yeah, this is a team that um, they've pretty consistently underperformed their underlying numbers, um, not just this year, but the past few years. And, and some of that is, um, you know, part of what led to Tati Castellanos's uh, deserved or undeserved. Uh, you, you can be the judge of that reputation as, as kind of a bottler. But this is a team that is always going to play beautiful soccer. They're going to play a great brand of ball and it's going to look really nice. It's just a matter of do they, do they complete it? And, and um, you know, for, for quite a while uh, on Monday night, it looked like they might not get the sort of finishing, might not get the sort of end product. And then, you know, once they get that first one, especially against a team like Miami, I'm, I'm such, such a, a downer on Miami, but they're a team that one that once New York City is like, okay, we've, 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 we've broken the seal here. Uh, they're, they're not going to, take their foot off the throttle either. And they're really going to be able to, to get their way. And, and that's what happened. Yeah. And, and Matt, I'm interested. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing your take on this because I think in, in our lead up to the game, we weren't quite sure. We liked inner Miami in recent weeks. NYCFC has kind of been this up and down team all year. And it started to come on a little stronger towards the end of the season. Were you surprised by this performance at all by NYCFC? And I guess on the flip side by Inter Miami, but specifically by the home side, and how fluid it seemed to be, and how easy it really seemed to look. Yeah, I, I this was a match that I just I got dead wrong. Um, I I really thought that uh, NYCFC was going to be missing out on Talos Magno, and you know Keaton Parks didn't start. I thought that that was going to be significantly more of a concern than what it ended up being. Um, so egg firmly on my face. Um, what I love about this New York City team, and this is some, this is not an original thought by any means. This is coming from uh, a group chat that I was in. They have basically their three center backs in Colin Chanel and Martins, and then they have seven players who just like go out and try stuff. All all seven of those, you know, uh, midfielders forward or and toss in Tenerholm there. They're all so confident on the ball that they are able to go ahead and play pretty well across the field. And it just gives them a lot more flexibility than I think most other teams in MLS have. Um, and so I, you know, between that and then I think this is also where Miami really just felt that talent cap that probably came partially from the sanctions, partially from still just being a team that's kind of in flux and trying to figure out exactly what they want to be. Um, that really kind of was the death knell for Miami for me. And then, yeah, exactly like Tim said, they get that first goal and then it just cascades because they try to open up. You go into that, that midfield uh, and lower part engine that then just puts the ball forward. My, or uh, NYC is so good at pinging balls back and forth between each other that they can then pile it on. Yeah. And First of all, I do want to mention that that you know double post hit defensive like defensive hitting your own oh, cross that was post beautiful that was insane. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen that ever. Like maybe the highest xg on an own goal that did not end up being an own goal. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I've seen the crossbar like everyone's seen you know you kick it out hits the crossbar ha like you know great defensive play but then the second one. Like, looking like an attacker, like, volleying it off his own post. That was insane. But anyways, um, 
I, I think NYCFC, you mentioned the first goal kind of, you know, being that callous. I, I think it, it was the first goal, right? The maxi goal. Um, and that one was just inch perfect. Every pass in that sequence, Tinner, like the Tinner home getting the ball to, who was it? Was it Eber who laid off um, for Maxi? Was just everything had to be inch perfect. And it was. And that is what, as a Union fan, as you know, someone who has a team still alive in the Eastern Conference, makes me so scared. Because when they can play that kind of soccer, that's the kind of soccer that wins you championships. And to see NYCFC back close to that level, at least attacking-wise, without Magno, by the way, without Tavon Gray, is a really scary sight to behold. Matt, do you think they have what it takes to continue this run to beat a team like Montreal? Or, or do you think that they do have more limitations than last year, even if those limitations are just a different coach and without their star striker? No, I, I think that they certainly have the ability to, to get to that level again. And I think that primarily is coming from the fact that despite that they lost a, a huge part of their, of their team in Tati, um, a lot of other pieces have developed a little bit. Um, they're getting now some really, really solid play from their center backs, which they, I, there was just no pressure over like the last couple of months of, um, of MLS or of the regular season rather. Um, so now we're seeing that, you know, uh, Callens is able to go ahead and carry the ball a little bit better. They're able to get that production. They're able to get that movement. I, this is absolutely a terrifying team because they've also, they've been here. They can do it. Yeah. Tim, interesting getting your, you know, opinions on that NYCFC and kind of the resurgence in the last couple of weeks. Do you think that they're at the level that they can take on, you know, Union, Montreal, the top teams in the East and the league, and start to, you know, kind of rewrite uh, another script that might see them as playoff champions? Yeah, I mean, I think talent-wise, they've always had it. And on a, a given day, talent can go out and, and win you a game. I am like, you know, as, as much as I think it's, it's, a, it's an obvious choice to be so down on, on the manager, Nick Cushing, I think he's also a guy... And he showed it basically over the over the second half of the regular season until the, their solid run, um, you know, including um, the game this week is is he he can squander a lot of that talent too. Um, they they can go out and play beautiful a beautiful game yeah. because they have the talent and that talent can can you know go out and win a game in spite of the manager. I, I think that more often than not, not always, but more often than not, they kind of have to. And, um, you know, they, again, they, since they can, it's not, it's not exactly a death knell, but, you know, if you're putting, uh, as, as you will be very soon, <laughs> New York City up against like a Montreal, do I think Wilfred Nancy is, is going to have the better plan? Yes. Do I think Wilfred Nancy is going to have the better players? No, I think NYCFC probably has the best or second best roster in the in the playoff field and in the league this entire year it's just a matter of of it coming together on a given day i think also a matter of whether they have you know tyus magno in there who mm. we know he is a special level of attacker and without him i remember last week you were saying matt you know it's going to be a completely different game and maybe it would have been six but i i think that they managed without him um i think when they have him back hopefully I haven't heard the injury reports. Hopefully he's able to come back this week, next week. 
even if it's against my team, because you do like to see, you know, the stars of this league thrive. And I think he is a budding star of this league. Uh, he can be something really special. Uh, but yeah, I, I think quickly from an inner Miami perspective, an unfortunate game, you know, playing against a, a very talented roster when they start clicking, you know, there aren't too many teams who can beat them. But I think specifically from a Higuain perspective, Tim, uh, obviously we're going to get into Higuain more whenever you know we do an inner Miami recap or whatever. But I think specifically in terms of this game, those emotions kind of around it, this is a player who's played the top level of soccer that there is to play in the world. He has played in the biggest game of soccer in the world. I think when he came to MLS, there were certain, there were certain expectations that obviously come with a player of that stature. It, it was rocky. It wasn't always, you know, perfect. But he's found a way in the last year or so to become the player that Inter-Miami needed him to be. And I think that that speaks volumes about the player that he is and the player that we're going to remember him by. How will you remember Gonzalo Higuain? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I'm I'm probably going to remember him mostly as a disappointment, which is unfair to him, to be honest, because I think um, this year uh, was very different than than before. He he was very clearly not taking it seriously. Um, yeah, I don't know for the first year plus at least um, that he was in this league, and then you know I think especially late this season he really kind of came around and said, "Hey, like, yes, this is my job. Yes, I thought you know it was going to be easy, but." I'm a guy who can go out and and do what everyone thought I was going to do in this league, but I have to make kind of an active choice to do it. It's not going to happen by default. And he went out and and credit to him, he went out and and decided to do that. And it, um, you know, you mentioned the emotions. I think he a big part of of what allowed him to go out and and live up to the expectations is that he finally cared <laughs> and finally decided to put in the effort, both um, you know, in game and and probably in training that's that one's more of a guess but it seems like you probably don't perform uh with the increased levels of performance that he saw if you aren't going out and putting in an honest day's work so that's something that that you know i wish we had gotten more of it because what we saw when he was at his best was incredible and and it is going to be a shame to see him um you know leave without really being able to to be the player that everyone thought he'd be able to be in this league but the reason that he's not going to be the player everybody thought he could be in this league is because um of of i guess the the age factor that led him to mls in the first place to be quite frank about it so it's a situation where i'm glad we at least got to see glimpses of it but um it it is going to kind of bring up bittersweet feelings that we didn't see it consistently missed opportunity like if he had just if there's a seriousness that he approached the league with, I think that he could have been like not David Villa esque, but like thought of in a similar light with, you know, a couple of asterisks in there for reporting that came out, all that fun jazz. Um, like he, he could have been so much better than he was. I'm happy that he got to go out with a bit of a bang. Um, seeing him like end his career in a baseball stadium was rough, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's New York City, baby. What are you gonna do? So, there's some great tweets about that. You know, it's worth it just for you know the comedy of it, which is like, I I understand that there's a certain amount of bittersweetness, but like at the same time, it's still a soccer pitch. Like they they turn it into a soccer pitch. It is just funny to see that, and 
even though soccer's come such a long way in the states, having that image be attached and maybe shared around the world is still a reminder that yeah, we have a little bit of room to grow as a soccer country. Um, but that's funny. Uh, but yeah, uh, final score: a thumping three 0 win by NYCFC, sending shivers down the spine of every team that is uh, left in the playoffs. That so yeah, this team might just be back, um, ready for another run. And boy, that would be a scary prospect when you have some pretty awesome players on your lineup, uh, as they do. But yeah, that's good enough for that game. And we will move into the final game of the first weekend of playoff matches before we quickly hit uh, previews of the upcoming matches. That is Minnesota United traveling to Dallas to take on an FC Dallas team. That, you know, two very uh, contrasting ends to the season in terms of what they had to do to get to where they were. Um uh, Minnesota needing to win or draw on the last day after falling, you know, significantly in the last month or two of the regular season. FC Dallas basically stabilized and were pretty solid that, you know, at the very least they were going to make the playoffs, probably going to host a playoff match. And, and so it was very much uh, for me seeing what the emotional level was going to be of these two teams how much they came out with the intensity that, you know, for Minnesota, they showed on the last day of the season. For Dallas, they really didn't have to. And I think it was basically a stalemate. Obviously, as it played out to penalties, Dallas winning in penalties. But I think that these two teams showed that they were a pretty even match for each other. And that, to me, was pretty intriguing. Matt, what was your take on this match specifically? as Dallas ended up winning it uh, in pens. Um, the, my, my joke, but it's more true than not uh, takeaway, is that the, the stale part of stalemate is doing most of the heavy lifting there. This was a, a not very fun match to watch. Um, but uh, the, the more accurate way of putting it is that I think that Reynoso really needed to show up for Minnesota to have a chance in this match. He did. Um, Dallas had opportunities to put this away before it went to penalties. They didn't. Um, and then it really just kind of came down to a couple instances of either poor form or brilliance. And, you know, it, penalties are always a crapshoot. But, I mean, when you've got a little bit of confidence, when you can pull what Alan Velasco pulled out, it gives you that edge. And, uh, yeah, this... I, I don't have a ton of takes on this game, truth be told, just because this it, it just did not seem to have much umph to me. What did what do you guys see? No, I was the exact opposite, and your your take is definitely really the, the more it's definitely the more uh, um, widely held one. I guess would be the best way to put it. But I I was having so much fun watching this game, which is weird because like you know you get to what is essentially a a, a fairly limp, at least in terms of score at least in terms of chances but like you could feel the intensity and that's something that you don't always feel in these games even if they are maybe a bit more exciting from a from a traditional watchers perspective I, I i thought it was just a really fun game to watch i i certainly understand why that is not why that is not the broadly held take but i was having fun watching it and that's that's essentially at the end of the day where this is supposed to be an entertainment product and I was entertained. So there you I'm go. I'm interested but, in that. Yeah. What, what matchups do you think were particularly like uh, 
interesting or like what what matchups made or lost the game for you? Um, I I thought it was less about matchups and and you know I I just felt like there 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 was an emotional aspect to it that that I actually think um you know this Minnesota team is is kind of known for it but I think Dallas had been kind of. I don't want to say stale, but they they seem like almost stoic too often over the course of the season, which you probably wouldn't expect given kind of the makeup of their roster with you know some some young stars in there and a guy like Paul Ariola who's uh, you know known for being kind of a, a fiery guy for the U.S. men's national team, but it just seemed like over the course of the year they were just kind of going out and playing soccer, and this was like a, a chance to go out and show emotion, have fun, and. I thought that was the the thing that really kind of gave the uh, gave the character to the game that I ultimately ended up feeling. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't think I had as much fun watching it as you did. Um, but- yeah, I, I, I'm I'm certainly not in the mainstream on that one. I'm very willing to to accept that. <laughs> but no, I think I think that that's like that is one legitimate take about the game, and I think. That's part of the beauty of the league is like you can you can find mat you can find a lot of matchups and you can have fun based off like the kind of the you know knowledge that we have a lot about a lot of these players you can find stuff in these games that can bring you enjoyment even if the game itself like the soccering isn't the best but I, I think in this game it was interesting for, uh, for me to see kind of how the goals came. Like Minnesota, like neither of these two teams, for what it's worth, loves to play with the ball. Dallas is a little more comfortable with it than Minnesota, but neither of these teams were really able to hit on what they're best at, which is counterattacks. And I feel like if that happened a little more, if these two teams opened up the way that we know that they're capable of, we could have seen a little bit more. But I feel like a lot of it was pretty cagey, a lot of possession in the back. And it's like, okay, that's all right. But I came here to watch like a 4-3 game, not a 1-1 game. I don't know. That was kind of my take on it. But I'm glad we got the Velasco penalty. Uh, and I'm, for what it's worth, I'm, I like Dallas. Probably better for a United States fan's perspective that they're moving on just to continue to get guys like Ferreira and Ariola game time. But, yeah, I feel like there's not a ton to touch on specifically in this game because in terms of like the recap nature of it, there's not a ton to talk about. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is Dallas moving on um, to face Austin, and that will be an extremely stiff test away from home uh, this time. And I'm super excited to see that. So I think that's basically all we have for our uh, recaps of the games that were. We've gone pretty long with that, so I'm hoping to go pretty quick with the um, you know upcoming game previews. And I do want to start, again, we can do this in chronological order, with the first game of Thursday night, um, which is crazy that, you know, we're already going back to this on Thursday, 8 p.m. in Chester, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia will take on FC Cincinnati, almost a Philly A versus Philly B, maybe the, um, the, the, the waiver, the Philly waiver team, I guess, maybe in terms of Cincinnati, where they have a Philly coach, a Philly front office dude as their GM. They have guys like Sergio Santos, Ray, Ray Gattis, Powell on their team as well. So this is a team that's... Uh, Madunyanin was there for a little bit too. You know, this is a team that's pretty chock full of, um, uh, of union players, but they will play the real deal 
and the real deal has been incredible this year. So, Matt, I am interested in hearing kind of just briefly your overall take on this game, what you expect to see, and who do you think, you know, triumphs at the end of the day? I think the edge certainly has to go to Philly. They haven't lost at home. Um, they they are obviously a very, very well-constructed team. Um, the the I, I'm I'm starting to try and approach uh, watching matches in a slightly different way, where I'm I'm trying to really key in on a few key um, battles. And for me, in that match, it is how does uh, the Cincinnati right hand side try to contain Kai Wagner, um, and then how does the match work through midfield, specifically on uh, between Jose Martinez and Lucho Acosta. Those are the two uh, matchups that I'm particularly interested to see how those things will go ahead and create the differences in the match. I think those are the two spots that uh, Kai Wagner has been probably the best player on Philly. I don't know if that's fair. They've been very, very good. Um, but I, I, I think that that's going to be one that's going to be the most important thing. He's going to set the, the bar for uh, Philly and then how they can get or how uh, since he can work through the midfield is going to set the bar for them. Yeah, Tim, interesting on getting your kind of take on this. I think for me, if Philly dictates this game the way that they on, on their terms, I guess the way that they want to play at home, they will have success because this is a very good team. But Cincinnati has the blueprint better than any team because they're the only team this year that, I guess, maybe aside from Charlotte, but that was a weird game. But, like, like Philly, you know, not off an international break or anything, in the middle of their best run of form, kind of dismantled them. And I think, do you think, I guess, do you think that they're going to be able to take lessons from that? Or do you think Philly's going to be able to change up what happened in that game enough to basically render that lesson useless and dictate the game on their terms. Yeah, I think I think Philly always has the ability to dictate the game on their terms. That's what they um, you know, are designed to do. They're designed to be a team that um, is built from the ground up, from the academy up to, to play a specific way. And they are very obviously very good at, at constructing their team to do that. For me, it's the the biggest question is can you know the, the one or two stars uh, for Cincinnati make the difference on the day? Because again, it's it's kind of similar to the NYCFC thing where I'm I'm not sold on Nick Cushing, but they have the players that can make the difference. I think Vasquez and I and I obviously think Lucho Acosta are the sorts of guys who can who can make that difference on a given day. Um, Cincinnati is is probably going to want to hit on the counter. Um, somewhat similarly to what they did um, this past weekend. But Philly is a team that, um, you know, to a certain extent wants to do the same thing. I think they're going to be very wary of letting Vasquez hit them on the counter. And I, I, I think when, when it boils down to it, um, do I take Jim Curtin over essentially a Jim Curtin protege to have the better game plan? Yes, I do. And, and so from there, it is just a matter of can Acosta or, or Vasquez just make that moment of magic. I, and I think, you know, smart money is obviously on Philly, but it's not like it's a guarantee where those two guys can't be the difference makers. No, I am definitely nervous that one of those two guys can do something to break the game or even Brenner. Cause we know that he's been a lot better this year. No, I'm definitely not assured in the fact that the union will win. I think they should win due to the fact that they are 
that have been the best team in recent weeks and we, I guess recent months in MLS with that crazy goal difference, right? Um, finishing level mm-hmm. on points at the end of the day with LAFC. So again, this team has, it is in terms of the best team in MLS recently, it's been the union and as a whole, you know, those teams are basically tied LASC and Philly and what they did in the regular season. So I think it will be interesting to see what Philly can do with Cincy. And, you know, I think if that, you know, that was it July, August matchup, maybe it was in September didn't happen where since he come out and just smoke Philly front to back, then I would sit here and I would be like, I, I would be like, okay, yeah, this is a pretty simple, straightforward match. But because I have that in mind, I'm a little more nervy because they shut down basically everything that Philly tried to do in that game. Um, and if they're able to do it again, even though it's going to be even tougher at home for the Union, you know, that crowd behind them, it, Cincinnati still prove a very, very tough team to beat. And I'm not... not cons- uh, what an incredible thing to have to say after the first few years of oh, Cincinnati's yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, this is a complete mentality. If you If you told... Any MLS fan a year ago that Cincy were going to be a team that was feared by the number one team in the East to come in and disrupt exactly what they were trying to do, I'd be like, okay, yeah, you can sit down. But this <laughs> this Cincy team is a problem waiting to happen, and they can make any team scared, I think, just because, like I said earlier, the game breakers that they have. So I think it sounds like all of us would, in a normal kind of probability sense, predict a union win though we all kind of acknowledge that Cincinnati has what it takes to get the job done. And I think that's going to be a theme um, for our next match, too, with the LAFC and the Galaxy. Uh, that game's going to be on after the Philly game on FS1 at 10. Another Trafico in the playoffs, the second one in the short tenure of this rivalry. And I guess from an LAFC perspective... That's where the uncertainty is. You know what you're getting from the Galaxy. You know it's not going to be amazing, but it's going to be good enough, good enough to beat Nashville, good enough with guys like Ricky Pooge to get that job done. But I'm I'm uncertain about LAFC just because they didn't finish the season that well. It was up and down. You know, Buenga has been someone who's gotten chances, hasn't put any away quite yet though we know that that stuff will often even back out i'm kind of mixed on lafc tim what are your feelings on lafc as a team and what are your feelings on this matchup because i think it really can go either way yeah i think the matchup is is an interesting one lafc is is just on a different level from from basically everyone else in mls from a from a talent perspective um, NYCFC, like I, I said before, is probably the the one team that you'd say there there might be an exception to, but it's it's built a different way as well because you, LAFC is in large part built with the name guys. I I just feel like since their their midsummer signings, which they obviously made them with MLS Cup playoffs in mind, but they just don't seem to be as good of a team. And I you know it's not because Gareth Bale came in and took anybody's minutes because he hardly plays. Um, it's not because Giorgio Chiellini has come in and been bad, and it's not that he's been good either. He's just kind of been a guy, which is not what uh, LAFC was probably expecting when they when they signed him, but I don't think it's necessarily something that they see as a problem either. But it, it just feels like 
weirdly that maybe the the whole is is not necessarily finding the sum of its parts at this stage and i think that that's the the main um you know sign of hope for a team like la galaxy which can say hey since pooch has come in we feel like we're more than the sum of our parts and la uh, lafc excuse me feels like they are less than the sum of their parts and that's where you really kind of have that equalizer i still feel like lafc is the favorite um, you know, not maybe not to the degree that I feel like um, since he is, is a realistic uh, option to win, but Philly feels like a heavy favorite. I feel like LAFC is, is a slight favorite, but either team could could realistically win this one, and, and I don't think anybody would be surprised. I echo that sentiment. Matt, I am interested in getting your take on what Tim's saying about like kind of the sum of its parts type of thing. Do you think it's too late for LAFC at this point to rectify some of those some of those problems with how they're playing, you know, and interchanging amongst each other. Do you think at this point, just throw the talent out on the field and hope that the more talented team wins? I don't think that I'd I'd put it exactly like that. I think that um, they just need to be very smart about the the opportunities that they actually are looking towards, and then they need to generate that buy-in. They need to have those, you know, wingers actually track back and do a, a little bit of defensive work. Um, I, to be quite honest, I see the galaxy winning this, despite the fact that it's at the bank, despite the fact that uh, LAFC has a ton of talent because they absolutely do. But, uh, I just, I really like the midfield battle coming from the galaxy right now. I think that they can create those chances. I think you're still going to get really good movement from your striker. And I think that that's going to, you know, win the day for them. The the one thing that I'll say for the Galaxy, or, or for uh, LAFC's chances, rather, um, they need to really pay attention to moments when they can get in behind those fullbacks who have gone forward because they create so much space. Unless the Galaxy is very good at covering, they're going to have Christian Teo, they're going to have Carlos Vela, they're going to have Dennis Buanga, running directly at Koulibaly and Caceres. And that's going to be a absolute big red flag for the galaxy. Yeah, no, I, I, and I'm, I'm with you on kind of both things that you said. I think I can definitely see a way the galaxy win. And this is why I'm, I'm, it's almost a 50, 50 for me because it's very much a bird in hand versus two in the bush. You know what you're getting with the galaxy. And I think it's good enough to beat what I think you could get from LAFC. But what you, what you also could get from LAFC is a team that has multiple European level players on their team who can produce at that level. I think it now is just a waiting game to see which one we get from LAFC. And I think that's a, that's going to be pretty easy to see, you know, do we get that? Do we get that side from LAFC? That's going to, you know, be game breakers all over the pitch or the team that plays less than the sum of its parts. I think for the galaxy, it's very much give the ball to Pooj in the attacking third let him make magic happen. And Chicharito needs to start, you know, producing the goals that we've, you know, he had that one call back. That was a very nice goal. Can he start to put more of those in the back of the net that count? And if he does, we know how good this team can be. I think this is a team that can make a run if those two things are happening. But those two things need to happen first. So I guess we'll see what happens. I would say LAFC is a slight favorite, but... We will wait and see. Uh, we can move on to the Sunday games, the last two games um, of the second round. 
Uh, we it will be uh, again East playing first, then the West. The Montreal NYCFC game is at one on Sunday, and for me, this is the tightest game of the second round, bar none. I think this is a crapshoot. I think CF Montreal has exactly what it takes to beat a, an NYCFC team that's structured the way it is. Though NYCFC can easily, like we were saying, come out with their exceptionally talented roster and break down any team in the league. Tim, how do you see this one playing out? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the long and short of it right there. Is I think Montreal has done a really good job building a team that is is specifically designed to stop a team like NYCFC. It's just a matter of can you do it because because NYCFC has the has the horses to say regardless of how you're built we can come out and 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 get it done on a given day um you know like i said before i i think nick cushing is is there, there's no way the interim tag becomes a permanent deal right his mid-season swoon for nycfc really kind of took a lot of the luster off this team um and that's and that's something that that worries me if i'm an nycfc fan you look at a team traveling to montreal and it's not obvious far from one of the the longest trips they'll have to take but the international travel all those sorts of things um do come into play a little bit and i think um i i i have belief in this montreal team it just feels like they have what it takes to knock off a team like nycfc and they're and they're structured to do it and it's just a matter of again going out and doing it on the given day yeah it's perfectly fair matt how do you see this game playing out and i guess do you think that there are going to be any, you know, any other factors except kind of the ones that you let out earlier when we were doing our game recaps, which is just like if Montreal is able to be that defensively sound team, you know, versus kind of those individual matchups that NYC loves to create. Do you think that uh, Montreal has what it takes to kind of hold up against that? Or do you think that, you know, guys like Morales, guys like, you know, Santi, uh, Santiago, uh, why am I blanking on his last name? Uh, Rodriguez. Um, and some of those guys can you know, be the difference makers that we know that they can be against Montreal, which is a good side, but maybe less talented, I guess, on the whole. Yeah, this uh, certainly the most interesting matchup in this entire round of game. Eh, that's not true. El Trafico is huge. Uh, so we'll call it the second. Um, it, it's going to be really interesting because I, I question how much Montreal can get past that back line. Cause I, I really do trust that pack three quite a bit. I think that they're very, very solid. Um, and then for uh, NYC going forward, Montreal defending Piet and Wanyama have to be just as big as they've been all season. Because again, New York loves to go ahead and get multiple runners in that like, area just ahead of the box it gives them a lot of opportunities to go ahead and go to a cut uh winger cutting in or try and play a ball into ever where they can then go ahead and uh ping stuff around a little bit like there's just a lot of concern there and i'm i'm particularly concerned if we see uh miller or waterman try to carry the ball into midfield if they get turned over there's a very very um high level of concern that there's going to be a lot of runners coming in from NYC. So that's going to be something that I'm going to be watching. Yeah, I think those are kind of the keys. If NYCSC is able to create those overloads and those kind of dynamic attacking moments that really only they, they are able to create in this league, then yeah, 
Montreal's going to be in for a long day. But, you know, Georgie is a special player. Kyoto is a special player. If they're able to produce kind of those moments that we expect players at that level to produce, it can quite easily go their way as well. That's a, It's going to be the tightest matchup and a super interesting one, as you mentioned, Matt. Lastly, the Texas Derby between Austin FC and SC Dallas. This one's going to be in Q2. We know that that place gets rocking. I think Taylor Twelman put out that they sold out within minutes of you know uh, the ticket release. I think he mentioned 35 straight sellouts for that stadium now, which is an incredible number. Um, the support is behind that team. Uh, and I think the the team's delivered up to this point. Though with that shakiness in mind from the first round, Matt, I am interested to get your take. Do you think that this team is going to be able to rebound from what was not their best match against RSL? And on the flip side, Dallas, after not playing their best match versus Minnesota, has to find a way to get back to the level that they can play at. Who do you think has the upper hand in this game, given recent form? Mainzer is still um, Austin. Because I think that they still have difference makers. When I look at the the go-to guys on those two teams, Driussi, I think, is a higher number one choice than Ferreira. Fagundes and Ariola are pretty comparable, unless they're... Eh, mm. Yeah, I think they're pretty comparable. It's a little bit more situational for both of them. Ariola going into space is really, really good. Pressing, he's very, very good. Fagundes is just very, very solid in possession. I think that he's really difficult to dispossess. So that's um, kind of the the high-level stuff. And then uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Martinez and Hedges can do to go ahead and hold up uh, Driussi and then whatever they're going to get from that striker position. That's going to be, whether it's Uruzzi or Jita, they play very differently, but they like to find a lot of the same spots. And that's what... Are, that's one spot that I'm I'm a little bit less confident about um, Dallas's ability to hold that up. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a I'm a major like stat nerd, so I've been skeptical of Austin all year, and they've continued to prove me wrong all year. And and some of that is uh, comes down to what we've been talking about in, in a few other contexts over the course of this pod too. Is that they have talent that can be different difference makers um you know if if one team has sebastian jerusi and and neither team looks like it's like so much head and shoulders above the other one in terms of of performances over the course of the year i'm probably taking the one that has the guy who's going to be the biggest difference maker and i do think that that's jerusi and and um you know as as much as austin has been uh shaky at times i guess when they're at home, they just seem to be able to outperform their underlying numbers in, in ways that are statistically improbable to do with the consistency that they do. And, um, you know, I guess smart money would be, hey, they aren't going to do that again. But I'm, I'm willing to buy into the, the weird Austin mojo and say that they just get the job done at home and they, and they continue to do that here, too. Tim, I've shelved my, my statistical morals for Austin a long time ago. <laughs> like... I am a massive stack guy as well. But honestly, I don't really care when it comes to Austin because they just continue to find a way to win. I was a little Mm -hmm. skeptical at the beginning of the season when they were putting fives on Cincinnati and Inter-Miami. And then they just like kind of kept scoring the entire year. And I kind of just started believing that like, yeah, this is that team. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. But you have guys like Driussi 
who can pull like ridiculous moments on a seemingly regular basis. Um, and you have enough, you know, consistency from guys like Fagundes uh, that, you know, I think it is possible. And I think in this game, they do have the upper hand. I think that their back line, while not being a, a, like, a ridiculously amazing back line, is a solid back line. I think Stuver is a top probably three keeper in the league. And when you have the MVP of the league probably on your team, you can do stuff that other teams can't do, even when, you know, generally like conventional wisdom would say you can't. And I think Austin is going to be able to harness kind of that we've got better players than you energy, at least past Dallas, because I love Ferreira. I love Areola. But that team just hasn't really clicked to their what I think their full potential is all year. And I just don't expect that to happen against a good Austin team away from home. I, I think for those reasons, I don't think it's going to be an amazing soccer matchup. Because I, I, I think it's the playoffs, it's a rivalry game. It's just it's going to be pretty pretty tight, especially on Dallas's end, which I think is going to be part of the game plan. But I think for Austin, I think it's going to be just a little bit a, a little bit too much for Dallas to handle, and I think Austin. No matter where that goal comes from, because they kind of came from random places in, against Minnesota, but the goals are going to come somehow. And I think Austin has what it takes to get the job done. I think that might be the easiest prediction for me for some reason, just because I'm not sure about Philly, especially as a fan. I don't want to predict that game, but no, I, I think Austin and Dallas. I think Austin. I think Austin has the upper hand in that matchup. Um, Can I ask a quick question? If uh, or. If Dallas is to win, who do you guys think has to have the biggest performance? Who needs to step up? Jesus Ferreira. Yeah, it's got to be. I would say Jesus as well. I, I mean, you could see mechanisms through which Dallas gets a win with like Ariola or or um, Lejet stepping up, but I, it's got to be Jesus. He's got to get back to sort of the the XG uh, vacuum that he was over the course of the regular season that kind of died off towards the end. And, and and convert on some of them to to really have that you know that level of success that is going to be required to pull the upset. And he's my guy. I, I believe in him. I think he has what it takes to get the job done. But I think he does have to be the guy. He is. I mean, what was it? Sixteen goals, eight assists, or something along those lines mm-hmm. over the course of the season. Eighteen and six. Maybe that's what it is. He's he was around the top of the Golden Boot race before Gazdag kind of broke it open the last few weeks and is the young young player of the year like he has those accolades now it's time for him to show up in the playoffs and for dallas you know it's been a a year or two since they made the playoffs and you know last year was not the best year for the so for them to rebound this year has been good already now you know you see if you can take that next step into you know challenging for the conference i mean at that point if they win this game then they're right there so i think yeah Jesus has to be the guy for Dallas if they want to get the job done. And I think that question doesn't even need to be asked for Austin because the answer starts with an S and ends with an I. And he's probably the MVP. So I think that's all that we got on that game. And I think that's about it for a very long pod. But we got all that, uh, uh, you know, kind of happened in the first week of MLS. Yeah, all that happened in the first week. Maybe everything that's going to happen the second week, we were... We weren't 100% last week, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I think that's all, about, that's all she wrote for this, uh, this pod. 
Matt, thank you as always for joining me. Tim, a special thank you for hopping on this week as Andres was out. And I would love you to plug your your pod and all that you got going on because you did in the past. But I, I want to see you do it again because I think it's a great you know resource for a lot of MLS fans. And we just love your content. Yeah, you can find my website at clubcountryusa.com. Um, it's called Club and Country with URLs, Club Country USA. All the social media is the same um, at Club Country USA, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, those places. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been covering Nashville SC since before there was even a USL team and, uh, you know, have been doing it longer than anyone. And, and uh, I'm very happy to be doing that. I'm also the president of the North American Soccer Reporters, um, where I largely liaise between, <laughs> between individual reporters and, and Major League Soccer at this stage. But um, we're an organization that uh, is, the, is the advocacy organization for journalists covering the beautiful game in the United States. Yeah, that's pretty awesome credentials. So definitely go follow Tim uh, on Twitter, follow Club and Country, uh, Premier Nashville coverage. And I think, yeah, your life's going to be better off for it. And maybe he'll be back to recap Nashville in full with us and definitely give us a lot of good Nashville insight as we broke down their playoff matchup as well. So thank you so much, Tim, as always, for some amazing content that you, you know, share with us at well and we are very uh you know very privileged that you're able to do that for us and we will be back next week andres i believe will be back so it will most likely be matt and andres and i to recap the four matchups that will take place this weekend it's getting real folks as we get to the second round of the playoffs the conference finals are just a week away and so there is so much to look forward to in the league that we all love but that's for another week So until then, enjoy life, enjoy the beautiful game, and we will see you then.